Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Look out, children, it's the scariest thing you'll see all night. Old weird man with a pipe. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I'm your host, Brian Levine, coming to you on, uh, well, this I guess this is the Halloween edition of the Pipes Magazine radio show for the year 2020, which I hope soon will be over. Uh, but anyway, on this week's show... Uh, I got a uh, got another experiment that I did on aging tobaccos and the results of that. I uh, my guest tonight is uh, pipe collector and uh, part-time musician Chris Tarman and his uh, Ashton Pipe Collection. So you get to hear that music for the holiday mailbag and rant. All that coming up on this week's episode of the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. And remember, the Pipes Magazine radio show comes out every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and then is uh, available for download or streaming indefinitely. You can go back, listen to all the ones you want, anytime you want, and uh, help your friends figure out how to do that because that apparently is a bit of a question that I get on a regular basis of how do we listen to the show? What happens if we uh, don't get it at 8 uh, 8 p.m. on Tuesday night, you know? So uh, help share and, uh, and explain to your friends how to listen to a podcast. Uh, while you're doing that, we would greatly appreciate iTunes ratings and reviews. Those do help the show stay up in the listings, and they are greatly appreciated. Uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, this, uh, this week, uh, this year for Halloween, I will be, uh, I guess because of the social distancing, I will be able to uh, actually smoke my pipe with my costume this year because nobody will be getting within six or eight feet of me. So that kind of kind of works out good for me. Um, I'll, I'll let you know how that works out on uh, Saturday. Anyway, all right, let's get the show rolling. So everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. are back all right so a couple of years ago probably um you know probably four years ago now i got into a discussion with mike mcneil of mcclelland and i I, you know maybe we don't want to call it a discussion we might want to call it i got to listen to mike for a while uh and we we had this conversation over aging tobacco and leaving air in the jar or you know leaving air in the can because uh, you know, keep in mind all the McClellan cans. Yeah, there was a little bit of a vacuum seal on them, but there was always a lot of air in there, and especially on the flakes. Yeah, the flake cans they always had a lot of air in there. My Acadian ribbon uh, does not have a lot of air in there because it's a ribbon cut and it's fairly you know fairly wide cut, so it would take up a lot of space in the can to the point where yeah you could shake it and hear something. So, uh, and then, of course, I was working at that point for uh, Sutliff and McBaron, where all the flat round cans and the, and the flat tins are all vacuum sealed down, and uh, in, the, in the loose cut stuff, there's very little air in there. So the discussion was with Mike that, you know, you needed to, that they packed their tins a little bit on the moist side, and with the idea that over time that air in the fermentation process of their Virginias and their English blends, that fermentation process would eat up some of the moisture and it needed oxygen and it needed the air in there for the air to get around and, and help with the fermenting of it. So here's what I did. 
about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, after hearing this story and I was in the process of jarring up some stuff, I uh, got, uh, I, I happened to have uh, acquired some, uh, uh, some loose uh, St. James Woods. Yeah, we'll just call it loose. And I jarred them up. And I jarred up most of it into, uh, you know, fairly large size cans, large size jars. But I did two smaller batches. And I did 100 grams in a very small jar. So it was packed in there tight. You know, those little squat, uh, those little squat jelly and jam jars. That, and how my wife will finally get this one back. <laughs> um, sorry, dear. Uh, and then I and then I jarred up a hundred grams in a bigger can in a bigger jar, so it had plenty of air. All right, so one was packed really tight, one was packed really loose. And I had, you know, I never wanted to argue with uh, with Mike when he tells you to do something. I usually do it, and but I just wanted to see what the difference was over time. So over the two years, these both went in weighing a hundred grams. Uh, over the two years, the one that was looser was a little drier so somewhere somehow uh the moisture had leaked out or evaporated or disappeared and it didn't weigh 100 grams anymore it weighed 97 grams uh, the other 100 grams weighed about 100 grams so the tight one kept the moisture in uh, the tight one had a much tighter seal on it too. So once I, you know, I, I guess with all that tobacco pressed in there and the fermentation process happening and a little bit of air in there, boy, that lid was tight. Uh, so I noticed that right away. Now, smell wise, I did like the smell of the blend that was, uh, that was packed or the version that was packed loose. I like that smell better. It, and I like the feel of the tobacco better because it was a little bit on the drier side and it was a little bit easier to get ready to smoke. Uh, the, uh, you know, the tighter one again was wetter, but didn't quite have that couple of years of age or that robustness to it. Um, in the smoking of it, uh, you know, it was, it was hard to tell if there was much of a difference. I, the biggest difference that I will leave you with is that, uh, probably because I had to dry down the uh, the tighter packed version of it, I it was a little on the tartar side. It had a little bit more sharpness to it, and maybe in the process of drying it down, I got it a little too dry. I went back and tried it again. Yeah, and and I was and and again I was goofing around back and forth with these, and I wasn't paying one hundred percent attention to it, but. The basics are, I thought that the one that was packed a little tighter had a little bit more tartness to it. The one that was packed looser had a little bit more sweetness or the, or the Virginia sweetness to it. And both of them were really good. Uh, I smoked uh, probably eight or ten bowls of each one. And then I just ended up dumping them all into one of the bigger jars so that, you know, so that I didn't have to worry about what was what. Put it back. And I'm letting it sit for a little bit so that the moisture levels can balance out again. But don't tell Mike I said this, but I believe he's right. If you're aging Virginias or Orientals or Latakia blends, make sure and leave a good amount of air in there, a good amount of space in there. Because you want that air in there. You want the moisture to come down a little bit as it's aging. And again, just a little bit of tartness in the tight one. Uh, a little bit more sweetness in the loose one. And this was just over a period of two years. So there you go. There's my thoughts, comments, questions. Email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And in just a moment, Chris Tarman. This is Internet Radio. A Savinelli pipe is a testament to a long legacy, fortified by well-worn hands and destined to be enjoyed for generations. For over 150 years, Savinelli has been dedicated to sourcing the world's finest briar, committed to pushing the boundaries of pipe design, and devoted to the tradition of Italian pipe making. Savinelli is more than a mark. They're a way to help you make your mark. And like you, there can only be one Savinelli. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining us is a pipe collector, pipe smoker, and a musician, so... 
you know what? Perfect for this. Uh, perfect for this little show that we do. Uh, but uh, Chris Tarman, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. So, what came first, the pipe smoking or the music? Um, the music. Although I, my dad was a pipe smoker the whole time I was growing up, so I grew up around that. Started playing bass when I was 15. My friends and I occasionally messed with cigars sort of in a joking way from about the time I was 16 on. And then when I graduated from high school, I told my dad, I want to learn how to smoke a pipe. And he said, really? Okay. And bought me a tiny little clay and said, all right, smoke that for a month, and if you can do that and stick with it, then we can move you to other things. Now, I was, this was in 1983, and I was a long-haired, sometimes bearded, hippie-looking <laughs> kid in Casper, Wyoming, so I didn't smoke that little tiny clay pipe out in public very much. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody might have thought there might have been something else in that little tiny clay pipe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so after a month of that, I think I went. He never really did get me going on very many things. Well, partly because he he's retired now, but he was a Methodist preacher. And mm. right after I graduated from high school, he got transferred to a little town in eastern Colorado. So I stayed in Casper and was kind of on my own going to college and stuff. But, yeah, I started I – started you know, buying basket pipes, and then I had this a hankering for a meerschaum, and then I saw a calabash, and it was like $45, and I was a freshman in college, and I, you know, it was a, a sickness that just progressed. <laughs> so. so, so I got to ask the, the Methodist preacher's son, who is a wild haired kind of occasional hippie looking. <laughs> kid um did the methodist preacher did he smoke presbyterian mixture no he actually he started smoking when he was in seminary in the uh, i guess late 60s and in dallas and he went to edwards um which i guess is there's other edwards but there was one in dallas that was so he smoked bishop burley that was like all he ever smoked and I loved the way it smelled in the car. When I started smoking a pipe, I, it made me almost quit smoking a pipe. So, the burly, I still can't stand burly very much. <laughs> so so, then, so we, we fast forward and you're in college. You finally, so you've just been, have you, you've been pipe collecting since the mid 80s? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things, Ever since I was a little kid, when I get interested in something, I get really into it, read as much as I can, and learn as much, absorb as much as I can. And that that started with aquariums when I was about 10. You know, by the time I was 12, I had four aquariums and a salt, four freshwater and a saltwater aquarium, which was pretty tricky in 1977. I guess a lot easier now. Yeah. so, yeah, then I started playing the bass. That I never really got as uh, absorbed in that as I should have because I'm still kind of a hack. Like, <laughs> I can't read music. I just make stuff up as I go along. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, when I started smoking a pipe, my dad smoked a pipe for years. He quit probably thirty year, almost 30 years ago now. But for him, they were tools. He never collected them. He had probably the same 12 or 15, you know, mid-grade Tamoy, GBD, Savinelli's, and a few odds and ends the whole time I can remember. And I have most of those somewhere, but they're not out on display because they're kind of cruddy and beat up and abused, like, like pipes were a lot back then. I got interested in it, and... um I liked bent pipes, he liked straight pipes, we used to argue about that. Now I've kind of come around, I like both, but now I understand why he liked straights. Um, he he never collected, uh, I started, yeah, and I think, 19, well, what really did me in was when I went into a pipe shop in 
Colorado Springs, I think. My parents lived about 90 miles from Denver and about 70 miles from Colorado Springs, and I would spend summers there while I was in college. I went into a pipe shop in Colorado Springs, which is where I just moved to. I live there now, and bought Richard Carlton Hacker's The Ultimate Pipe Book. Because there was no... <laughs> there were, you couldn't just go find a book about how to smoke a pipe or about anything about pipes. Yeah, And that, that kind of... I thought, oh, all right. Now I see these things. Now I want a Peterson. And the first expensive pipe I bought, expensive in quotes, other than the $45 Pioneer Calabash that I still have, was a $75 Peterson Mark Twain that I scrimped and saved. And I think I even traded in some some of my less wise early purchases at the <laughs> pipe shop I bought from in Boulder did estate pipes. And so, yeah, $75. Then in 1986, I decided I'm going to take a whole paycheck and I'm going to drive to Boulder and I'm going to buy a pipe with one paycheck. And as I'm driving the 100 miles from where my parents lived, I thought, it'd be cool if I got there and Dunhills were 50% off. <laughs> well, I got, there, I got there and they were 40% off, and I thought, that's close enough. So, yeah, 1986, when I was 21 years old, bought my first Dunhill. And then at the time, I was still smoking aromatics, and I came back into another pipe shop in Colorado Springs a week or so later, and the old guys there said, all right, if you're going to smoke those kind of pipes, you need to smoke this kind of tobacco. And they introduced me to uh, English tobacco, and that was that. <laughs> I mean, that that is really, for, that's rare and advanced. I mean, it. Twenty-one years old to buy a Dunhill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then by the time I was, oh, I remember having a little apartment when I was in college, um, where I think by then I was up to like maybe six or seven Dunhills, including a couple of patents. And you know, now I've sold. I've had a lot of Dunhills, and I've sold a bunch of them. I think I'm down to about twelve. But, yeah. so we're gonna we're yeah. gonna talk about your pipe collection in a little bit but first okay. you you said you were a bit of a musical hack however i saw in a picture where you and your band i'm assuming opened for kansas at a concert so you want to you want to explain that real quick okay that was that was a lot of fun because the very first album i ever bought when i was 12 was a kansas album and uh, so the town we just moved from on the western slope of Colorado, there's a little tiny town near there called Olathe. And there's also an Olathe, Kansas. But Olathe, Colorado is where they developed the world-famous Olathe Sweet Corn. And they have this festival called the Olathe Sweet Corn Festival. And I had been in a band for about a year with a guy who the singer and rhythm guitarist in the band was a marketer, and he did the posters and flyers and stuff for the Seacorn Festival. The first year I was in this band, they had an artist who I won't name. He passed away a couple of years ago. But apparently he was very difficult to work with. And Doug, our singer, told the Seacorn Festival board, Tell I could do I could book a better band than that. <laughs> he had no concert promotion experience or anything, but he had. He was one of these guys, or is one of these guys, who could get anybody to do anything he asked them to, because he just convinced you that, well, that's that's a great idea. That's what I want to do, and so he called me one day and said. How about Kansas? And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> and then he, he mentioned to the festival board, by the way, I have a band, and I know that I can't book us as the openers, but you guys can if you want to come and listen to us and see what you think. And so they came, and they were like, sure, okay. So, yeah, we got to open for Kansas which was a bigger deal for me than it was for anybody else in the band. The yeah. rest of the band was kind of like, eh, yeah, they're okay. 
But I was like, it's Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> and I, uh, you know, got to meet them and they were very tired because they had started off that morning in Pennsylvania and flown at like four o'clock in the morning, Colorado time. We're at the airport to fly to Chicago, to fly to Denver, and then to drive from Denver to Olathe. And uh, so they were tired, but they were really nice. And I got all the autographs of the guys that played on that first album. Um, a couple of them on the album aren't in the band anymore. But uh, so, yeah, that was a that was a pretty big deal for me. And I think there were about 9,000 people in the audience. And it was weird. Um, it was actually... I figured out later it's easier to play for 9,000 people than it is to play for 100 people because you don't see people. You see hats and sunglasses and hair. And <laughs> yeah. that was like it. So it was very surreal, but it was cool. And um, the bass player from Kansas ended up having to use my amplifier. <laughs> and because the one that they'd shipped over from Denver for them to use had a had an issue and so I still have that amp and and uh John Hyatt's bass players also played through it and a couple of other people that I didn't get to open for or anything just rented the amp out to to various shows so (laughs) but yeah that was that was a fun a fun moment and after playing that show I don't really get stage fright anymore when I'm playing you know my four sets of whatever in a bar, which is really about all I've done since then. That was, the Kansas show was definitely the pinnacle. Ha ha, nice little <laughs> Kansas <laughs> reference there, if anybody knows Kansas. <laughs> so so it's, been, it's been all downhill from there musically. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've played a bunch, and, and I've had a lot of fun and made enough money to pay for most of my equipment and occasional pipe purchases, but uh, I'm sure not not playing enough to make a living at it like some people can. We're I don't gonna, think very many people can make money, make a living playing music. So. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk about pipe collecting and uh, pipe collection and a uh, educational display at the Chicago Pipe Show that... Uh, Might include over a hundred Ashton pipes, so stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. Have a look in your tobacco cellar. What do you see? Think of what you smoke, what you age, what you're drawn to in a blend that keeps you wanting more. That's your taste, and whether you know it or not, you've been leading that expedition since you first picked up a pipe just by smoking what you like and liking what you smoke. But the funny thing about taste, it changes and you need a wide selection to accommodate it. We at Smoking Pipes know this and you know it too. So whether you're searching for a tried and true favorite or a singular boutique mixture, we're here to help you navigate the voyage of your evolving tastes. But you're still at the helm Smoking pipes in faithful service of the hobby. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, visiting with Chris Tarman. And all right, Chris. So this, so this is how I got interested. Got really interested was uh, I saw a picture on Facebook, and it looked like a pretty massive pipe collection. And then in the middle of it was a director's award from the Chicagoland Pipe Club for doing an educational display. So, uh, first of all, do you know how many pipes you have currently in your collection? Um, not exactly. I believe I have about... We just moved, and I just got this room set up. And I think I have 445 that are out. There are the dogs that are out in this room um, on display, 
And then I realized that I've got, I haven't put out my clays yet, so I have, you know, a handful of clays. And then I've got a couple of, like, Rubbermaid coats full of junky things, like, you know, when you're in an antique store and you see a pipe rack that's got six pipes and there's one of them that you want, but you have to buy the whole thing, yeah. you know. Those just go chucked in in the van. So, and also, like, my my dad's pipes are in there. My father-in-law's pipes are in there because they were mostly in pretty rough shape. So, so yeah, it's somewhere slightly north of 500, but about 400 and some that are, that are usable. So how often do you get to, how often do you smoke a pipe? Um, a little bit more often now that I've retired and we've moved to a place that's not quite as windy as where we were, and we have a really nice deck. I don't smoke, I haven't smoked in the house in probably 15 years, so I went from smoking maybe once or twice a month to, I think I've had four bowls this week. Oh, the other thing that's fun is that I live a 12-minute walk from probably the best and possibly only real tobacco shop in Colorado Springs. So um, yesterday I walked over there and sat out on their deck and smoked a pipe with the other retired geezers. <laughs> I'm, only, I'm only 55. These guys were real geezers, but, you know, it was fun. And if that shop is really nice. It's more of a cigar store than a pipe shop, but they have a pretty good selection of tobacco. And, and it's like I said, it's a 12-minute walk, so... I think my uh, I think my pipe smoking is going to get up a little bit here. So you you say so you've got a you you got a pretty good rotation before you get back to smoking another pipe again. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if other collectors are like this, but the rotation, the ones that are in the current rotation, changes a lot. You know, you it's usually a handful of newer things that I've just acquired and then a couple of old standbys and then things drop in and out of the rotation. And the last couple of years I've been smoking Meerschaums a lot, although I have enough of them that I'm never, ever, ever going to get them colored very well. <laughs> but yeah, I, I call it a moody rotation where you get, you, you get your, you know, you get a couple, you get six or seven pipes that you just seem to smoke constantly and then you get a, a mood change and you change that group yeah early on in my collecting a guy in a tobacco shop told me that the one thing about pipes if you if you've got one that you don't smoke but you kind of like and you don't really know whether to get rid of it he said they don't go bad they just sit there and then one day you're like oh i don't want to smoke that one <laughs> well, that was another funny thing i asked my dad when i had maybe i'd been smoking for a year or so and had maybe 10 or 12 pipes i said how do you decide which one to smoke and he said you don't i said what do you mean and he said they decide <laughs> and i thought well that's weird but then it didn't take long before i figured out exactly what he meant you know you're standing there looking at them and one of them will kind of call out to you a little bit more than the rest of them do and and that's the one you're going to smoke. So you're now, when it, you have a whole when you have 400 pipes in your room, you might spend the whole day waiting for one to call out, to <laughs> tell you which one to smoke, and then you're out of time and you have to go do other things. But it's or, still enjoyable. Or you might walk in there and you have 400 pipes calling out to you, and the noise just blows your ears <laughs> out, and then you can't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. All right, so how did you, so your educational display was on Ashton Pipes. Um, right. How did you get picked to do the educational display at the Chicago Pipe Show? Well, I always wondered how that worked. Um, I think, I think I, the first time I went to Chicago was 2004, and then it was 2014 that I did my display. And um, I had... It was at the pre-show out in the tent, for those of you who've been to Chicago. Um, I bought 
an Ashton stamp straight grain uh, was the first stamp straight grain I had. And then I, right after I bought it, I ran into Fred Heim, who said, how's your show going? And I said, pretty good. I just bought my 99th Ashton. Mm-hmm. And he said, you have 99 Ashton's? And I said, yeah, now I do. <laughs> and about a half an hour later, Fred came to me and said, hey, Craig Cobine wants you to come talk to him. And I knew that name, but I I wasn't in the know enough to... I said, is Craig Cobine? And he said, well, he's the show director. I said, what do you want to talk to me about? He said, I think he wants you to, to display your Ashton's. So apparently how you get picked, or in my case, is somebody who knows that you have something cool goes and tells the show director who says, hey, do you want to display your pipes? And I thought, okay, I went and talked to him, gave him my information, and kind of expected him to say, okay, well, we'll we'll look over all the applicants and get back to you. (laughs) And by the end of the conversation, it was like, okay, next year, when you show up, you've got a, a six foot wide or six foot tall, four foot wide, or whatever the dimensions are, case, and uh, you'll pick up your packet when you get here, and you can come in early Saturday morning before the show starts to set up your display. And I thought, that's it. I'm in. Cool. <laughs> now I have to figure out what the heck I'm going to do, um, because. I had, I think by that time, I had one Ashton, at least one Ashton from every single year of of Bill Taylor's production. So in 83, he only made like 31 pipes. That was the first year, and I had one of those. Um, And uh, I thought, well, how am I going to do this? So I kind of decided, all right, I'll display them chronologically. But now in my collection, they're displayed in the order that I bought them. So that took some <laughs> some reshuffling and planning to to figure out okay how am I going to get them displayed in a certain order and then put them back where they belong when I get home and uh, and my my buddy that I travel to the pipe show with uh, Robert Vacher who's a pipe maker in California drove from California to Montrose Colorado where I lived and brought his buffing wheel. And we polished those things up, and, and then I packed them in, you know, this is the bag of pipes from the 80s, this is a bag of pipes from the 90s, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, yeah, if he hadn't have brought his buffer, they wouldn't have looked very good. <laughs> wow. Uh, they were pretty dusty and, and, and uh, neglected. So there's a so I mean besides getting to put these pipes out I mean there's a lot of work in in prepping for a good display and you had a you had a story behind it right Yeah I um I thought well how am I going to hold them up so you know I looked on eBay and found I hate to say it but a 100 you could buy a 100 little acrylic pipe stands for or probably less than that from China. Yeah. And so I thought, all right, well, that'll work. And it kind of worked for most of them. And I, you know, I had been to Bill's factory in 2001. So I had pictures from that trip of Bill and Sid Cooper making pipes. So I framed those and I had a, not a ton of ephemera, but I had a couple of old, you know, Ashton brochure thing, flyer things from the early days of the company, and I put those in there, and and I made little year tags to display. So, you know, every so you could you could look at the progression from '83 to 2009 when when he died, and uh, it was it was a lot of work. Um, it was fun. I got a lot of compliments on it, and. A lot of people said they'd never seen that many Ashtons in one place. <laughs> and and probably a, a project that you never want to do again. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I would if they asked me. I don't have anything else that would be that interesting, so it would have to be a repeat of the Ashtons, probably. But 
the rest of my collection is not what you would call focused. It's it's focused on things that I like, and uh, I tend to. Part of the reason why I got into Ashton was that I think I had three of them, and in 1998, uh, Bill came over to do a trunk show at a, a tobacco shop in Denver, Edwards uh, Tobacco Shop, and I went to that and met him, and he was just such a great guy yeah. that that's when I thought, all right, I like the, these pipes, I like this guy, I like the fact that I know him, and I started accumulating them. I went to visit him, bought a couple of pipes from him while I was there, hung out with him at the Chicago shows, um, helped him run his table. He'd have me write up the invoices when he'd sell pipes to, uh, to dealers. And I think I even got to stamp the dates on a couple of them at the show one year. And, uh, and so as we were talking before the, before we started recording, I got to, I got to realizing that a lot of the other pipes that I have, if I have any sort of a theme in my collection at all, it's that I like to buy pipes made by people that I know and like. Mm-hmm. So, um, Robert Vacher, I met him the very first year I went to Chicago. We were in the same line of work. We were both musicians. Um, the line of work we had has has a kind of a thick sense of humor, so we had that in common. <laughs> um, we were both correctional correctional officers. Both of us are now retired, so I can put that out there. Um, anyway, we just hit it off, and it was a couple of years of knowing him before I got around to buying one of his pipes. And now I have, other than the Ashtons, the next highest number of pipes in my collection are, are Vachers, Laughing Moon pipes. I have 33 of those. I've gone to visit him, and he's guided me through making, like, three pipes, um, which is kind of amazing. You know, a lot of times when people collect pipes, they end up making them, and then they start coming to shows, and, you know, they're pipe makers now. <laughs> not, that there, not that there's anything wrong with that, but when I look back at the woodshop projects that I had to make in seventh grade, I got no business making a pipe (laughs) me too amen yeah (laughs) there's two Uh, of us the things i made in woodshop look like drunk monkeys made them (laughs) one of the things i learned when i went to to visit bill taylor in england was oh if you've got the right kind of tool it's really a lot easier to do this than if you're trying to figure out in your head how to do it and so when i went to visit uh nature as i call him um, he'd already kind of roughed out the thing on the bandsaw because he said, I assume you want to keep all your fingers, so I'll do the bandsaw. <laughs> and and then, he, you know, we just sort of made a pipe, and then the next time I visited him, we made another one. And uh, they're okay pipes, but that's because he did the engineering, and I just kind of did the <laughs> shaping and, and finishing somewhat. So... Uh, and yeah, other pipe makers that I have that I know somewhat. I've got several Ballabies because I met him at Chicago, and he's not easy to talk to because I'm not sure how well he speaks English. Um, but I bought a few of his pipes back when I could still afford them. Yeah. And I have some uh, Jürgen Moritz from Germany, um, and those—he's a great guy. I, those are great pipes. I met Chris Asquith the first year he came, the first of only two years I think he came to Chicago. He's a young English pipe maker. And uh, I did not buy a pipe from him, but I meant to. And then I won one in a silent auction. And then when I was, I was in England a couple of years ago with my wife and my mother-in-law and went and visited him and bought two from him. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, like I said, if there's, a, if there's a, any sort of a theme to my collection, other than, ooh, shiny brown thing. My wife has always referred to my pipes as brown things, and she just sort of dismisses <laughs> them. Like, so, yeah, if, I, if it's anything, any theme other than just, ooh, I like that shape or whatever, um, it's, it's that I try to buy several pipes by pipe makers that I like. 
Yeah. Um, before we finish up, any any favorite Bill Taylor story that you want to that you want to tell before <laughs> before oh, we wrap this up? Oh, well, the one my favorite one I probably shouldn't tell, but I won't <laughs> tell that one. Um, but uh, yeah, he was for such a little guy, he could put down some beer. And I'm not a big drinker, but yeah, he. When I went to visit him in England, and it was a, you know, I'd only met him once. He picked me up at the train station, and we went and made. Well, I watched him make pipes. Then we went to lunch at the pub, and then he was sort of baffled that I would rather go back and watch them make more pipes than sit and drink beer. <laughs> um, and but I just was like, well, this is great. This is really good but can we go back and watch that guy run your sandblaster now? Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can we, can he, we he see the just, oil curing? He was just a lot of fun to talk to. And when he found out that I played bass guitar, um, he revealed that he had been, well, was I always a big who fan and I love the who. And, uh, so that was a, a fun connection. He used to see them, in their early days in a club in London, in the Marquee Club, when he was working at Dunhill. And I'd give anything to have been around back then. So uh, to hang out to hang out with Bill Taylor and watch the Who. That would have been Yeah. Yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. Well, Chris, we will wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Okay. What is your favorite pipe? Uh, let's see. Probably a straight grain um, Ashton Sovereign. It's not stamped straight grain, but it should have been. That I, uh, It's a bent bulldog that I picked up when I was visiting his factory. That's a great pipe. And what is your favorite tobacco? Um, a lot of anything with a lot of Latakia. My first, my first good tobacco was Dunhill nine six five. That's always been a favorite. Um, I'll say that, although that's probably been replaced, really. But I'm a better collector than I am smoker. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite drink? Um, Coca-Cola. There Unless you, you mean alcohol. No. And then probably single malt scotch. When it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? Um, usually, usually a movie, but music. It's funny, I, as a musician, I actually don't listen to music all that often because it's always, always, always going through my head. <laughs> I've always got some song in my head. So, And I've found that a lot of musicians can't relax when they're listening to music because they're actively listening to it, trying to, yeah. Yeah. Trying to dissect I, I woke it. Up, I woke up at like one thirty in the morning, either last night or the night before and tried to figure out the count on a, a progressive rock song that had shifting time signatures and I was I laid there for probably 40 minutes <laughs> trying to figure out what time signature it was and how you would count it so yeah I, listening to music is fun but it's not very relaxing for me usually and then finally do you have a favorite pipe smoking related memory that we haven't talked about oh so not long after I started smoking a pipe when I was in college um, a friend of mine and I had just bought Mearsham's and we stayed up all night long in his apartment like in a race to color our Mearsham's <laughs> and I don't know how many bowls or we probably smoked six, seven bowls a piece <laughs> and you know made almost no noticeable you know mark on the, on the Mearsham pipes but we had a good time and we we visited about a lot of a friend of mine that I had been friends with since high school. He was a couple of years older than me, and we had not been super close until 
about then, about that time, and so it was fun. We bonded a lot. He doesn't smoke a pipe anymore, but I'm still friends with him. <laughs> probably not after trying to speed color a meerschaum. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah, uh, Chris. Thank you very much for coming on and doing this, and uh, thanks for bringing your uh, your Ashtons to the show and going through all that, and hopefully we'll get to see them again sometime. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. And we'll be back in just a minute. The Carolinas and the tobacco tradition have been woven together generation after generation. From the Blue Ridge Mountains to the coastal low country, it's an integral part of our culture and heritage, building our beautiful tapestry. Cornell and Deal is proud to blend our pipe tobaccos in the Carolinas. Our history with tobacco dates back to the mid-1800s, and in that time we've perfected a variety of blends. The Carolinas have given us the perfect backdrop to do just that. Whether you're a fan of the rich Virginias, bold Latakias, spicy Periques, or unique aromatics, We've got a tobacco that's just right for your discerning taste buds. At Cornell and Deal, we live all things pipe tobacco. Blending it, smoking it, and enjoying the company of those who share our excitement. Tobacco, it's what we do. Stop by CornellandDeal.com. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. So I guess really what you need to do is bring a whole bunch of really cool pipes to the Chicago Pipe Show and get noticed. And then the next year you get one of those big glass display cabinets out front to uh, put your whole collection in. And then they give you an award. It's really cool. Anyway, I hope to I'd love to see those pipes again because I don't remember really getting a chance to spend any time looking at them. Anyway, all right, for music, Halloween is here, and uh, if you'll remember back, oh, I don't know, you know, like uh, back to July, we had uh, pipe smoker Lyle Erickson on, and Lyle is a musician in a band called uh, Pitch Black Manor, and I've been saving this one for this week, and this song is called All Hallows' Eve.
The band is called Pitch Black Manor. The album is available on bandcamp.com. Look them up. I'll be, uh, you know, I'll play some of this stuff on the front porch for Halloween while I'm standing there scaring kids and smoking my pipe. What in the hell? You've got mail. And if you have a comment or question, you can email me directly, Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at pipesmagazine.com, or you can post it on the Pipes Magazine radio show page or send me a message via Facebook or... um, I almost said LinkedIn. <laughs> I have one of those. I don't pay much attention to it. Uh, Facebook or Instagram. Either one would be perfectly fine. And going back to last week's show, Dino says it was great catching up with Jonathan. He is someone who obviously enjoys every aspect of his life and the choices and paths he's taken. Good on you, Jonathan. Uh, I simply love the music of Scott Joplin, and this piece has all the musicality and good humor that makes his composition sparkle. Another fine rant. Amen, Rav Brian. Rabbi Brian. Yeah, well, not... Yeah, could be. Uh, anyway, uh, Dino says, I'm just grateful to get up each morning. The rest is chocolate sauce on the ice cream. Thanks, Dino. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Dino's passed up too many chocolate uh, sauces on ice creams either. Uh Casey Ghost says, another good show. The Joplin piece wasn't anything like his best, but it was still most enjoyable. It sure beats the five to seven guys plugged into a wall socket that you usually have. <laughs> I enjoyed your interview with Jonathan, but have to wonder who's given him medical advice. Alcohol to disinfect viruses has to be 90% to work. The 60% just gives them a nice rub down. <laughs> uh, it will kill any bacteria you have, though. Nice rant. Uh, like Dino says, when you reach our age, any day you wake up alive is a good day. Yeah, I feel the same way. Um, uh, speaking of uh, Halloween and fun stuff, uh, Mark Johnson, under the pen name or the nom de plume of M.J. Downing, has a new Sherlock Holmes novel just in time for Halloween. Uh, it's called Sherlock Holmes, uh, The Werewolves of Edinburgh, being book two of the unpublished case files of John H. Watson, M.D. Uh, I just got the book a couple days ago and have not had a chance to even crack and peek inside of it. But uh, I'm sure if you go to Amazon or any of those places, you'll be able to pick it up. And, uh, you know, you could be reading it on Halloween. Ooh, scary. Uh, in good news... And uh, thanks to uh, Kirby Booth for passing this along to me. And we'll try to put a link to this down in the show. Uh, there's a there's a news article about a week ago on uh, Apple News uh, from NPR.org. <laughs> NPR, National Public Radio. Tobacco plants contribute key ingredient for COVID-19 vaccine. Um And here's the beginning of the article. I won't read the whole thing to you, but uh, historically, they write, historically, tobacco plants are responsible for their share of illnesses and death. Now they may help control the COVID-19 pandemic. Two biotech companies are using the tobacco plant, Nicotiana Benthamiana, as biofactors, biofactories to produce a key protein from the coronavirus that can be used in a vaccine. Uh, there's obvious irony, says James Figler, executive vice, vice president for research and development for R.J. Reynolds Tobacco. Reynolds owns Kentucky Bioprocessing, one of the companies working on a COVID-19 vaccine from plants. Uh, If you wanted to be cynical about it, you could, he says, but we tend to think of it as like at the end of the day, the tobacco plant in and of itself is still just a plant. Anyway, go ahead and uh, read that. It was on NPR. uh, And what I find funny is that same R.J. Reynolds tobacco company is, you know, used to be Winston and Salem cigarettes, and now it's Camel and uh, Newports and a couple others. So. The uh, tobacco world is, uh, you know, trying to do good and trying to help with the vaccine issues. All right. Uh, Again, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And in just a moment, rant time. There's nothing quite like a good book or my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe. An American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. 
See for yourself at corncobpipe.com. Somewhere, somehow, sometime in the past couple of years, uh, my wife may have had a sex change operation, and I'm I'm certainly 100% not aware of it. I can guarantee you I'm not aware of it, nor do I really think she did, but uh, it appears that she is now a guy. Yeah, yeah, you know why? Because when we go out to places, and it seems like it's getting worse and worse over the past couple of years, when we go out to places, you know, like a restaurant or something like that, and people, you know, the, the server will come to you, how are you guys doing? And I'm looking at it, and it's me and my wife, or me and my wife and my daughter. I don't know if my daughter had a sex change. I haven't looked, and I'm really not going to look. I really don't want that picture in my mind. It's Halloween. That's scary enough. So, uh, But apparently, the word guys now means um, people, y'all, you know, everybody. Guys are boys and girls, not just guys and dolls. So the so that uh, the musical Guys and Dolls is really just guys and guys, or they could have just shortened the title to guys. But apparently the the word guys has been replaced, you know, has taken over for uh, terms like folks or friends, which are all gender you know non-specific, or how are you all doing, or hello everyone. No, instead it's, hi guys, hey guys, what can I do for you? Guys, 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 guys. And apparently uh, women are okay with it. Uh, I guess it's better than me being called dolls because, you know, dolls can get creepy and scary and, you know, get sit in a corner and stare at you. But uh, anyway, uh, guys is now acceptable for, you know, I guess if, uh, I guess, you know, if you're a young guy, if you're a young male person working somewhere and four girls come up to you, I know, four young ladies come up to you. It's now perfectly acceptable to say, hi, guys, how you doing? Because yeah, that's what the word guys is turned into. So there you go. All right. Uh, so if I say thank you, guys, that means all genders, right? Yeah, because I know we have some ladies that listen to the show. <laughs> there you go. All right. Once again, comments, questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Keep sharing the Pipes Magazine radio show with all your friends and enemies. I uh, hope everybody has a very happy and safe Halloween, All Hallows Day, Dia de la Muerta, and all that stuff that's coming up. Thank you to uh, Chris for joining me. Thank you all for tuning in. And until bomba next time. the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather I am Dracula. Oh.